This is Union Days. Stories from a Union Scrapbook. When I was growing up, kids wanted to be... astronauts, footballers, scientists, shop owners, but I knew I wanted to be part of the Union world, part of the struggle for better jobs, safer conditions, greater equality. So I've worked in and for unions all my working life. It's been a huge privilege and a great experience. Vets, cops, lawyers, medics, footballers' wives, they all get to tell their tales. Now it's the turn of a union rep to open the scrapbook of stories. The people, places, Scraps and scrapes, heroes and villains, tall tales and low blows. It's the stuff of life itself, and I can't wait to share these stories with you. Let's get started. Conferences. Most of us have been to a conference, haven't we? A work-related conference, or a convention, maybe. They go under a range of different labels, don't they? These mass gatherings from a few hundred to the low thousands, from a couple of overnights to week-long commitments. And what are they for? These conferences, conventions, gatherings? Well, the opportunity for prodigious networking, for sure. A break from the usual, and we all know that a change is as good as a rest, up to a point. Often, it's a reward for the dutiful, a gathering of the clan, a reaffirmation of values and identity, a rallying of the faithful. But in membership-based organisations, it's a practical manifestation of the values that brought the group into being to start with. These events provide accountability, a means to make policy, to vouch safe democratic credentials. Trade unions are obviously in this category, but we're not the only people to feel this way. At the other end of the scale, gatherings are possibly a reluctant necessity, dictated by statute or public expectation, but structured in a way that arguably just gives lip service to accountability. AGMs of massive corporations, for example, with millions of proxy votes under the control of someone with the corporate interest hardwired into their psyche. And of course, all points in between are included. These get-togethers can embrace keenly adversarial debate, barely avoiding verbal blues degenerating into physical ones, but also include feel-the-love conventions and mass adulations of people, ideas or, or inventions. It was not so long ago that union conferences occupied a special berth in this pantheon, and in many ways they still do. Historically, spring through to late summer is union conference season. Eastbourne, Brighton, Bournemouth, Scarborough, Blackpool, anywhere, with a hall big enough, sufficient cheap but decent accommodation, and plentiful watering holes. It was like a procession almost, the Union Conference caravan rolling from one resort to another to another, accompanied by a pack of industrial correspondents from the newspapers who knew their pitch inside out, and all culminating in the annual Trade Union Congress in early September. Slowly but remorselessly, the union movement and our conferences have caught up with 21st century reality. Lower membership levels, tighter budgets, changing social habits, a generally hostile environment, 
the preeminence of digital comms, <laughs> and that's without the seismic shock of the COVID pandemic. Back in the day, unions and their conferences really were news. Pages devoted to the TUC's annual gathering. Newspapers produced special pull-out-and-keep reports of the conference season. Unions' own journals were given over to a comprehensive review of the debates at their own events. Getting name-checked, quoted, or even your mugshot in print there, that conveyed status all right. Growing up, I loved the theatre of labour movement conferences. They became the centre of the universe for those who were there. And if you weren't there, then you just weren't anywhere. And I was there. I was there, the intense hubbub, self-importance and pomposity, hyperbole and melodrama, scheming and schmoozing. Because it mattered, you see. Sometimes it mattered because the issue would define and dictate policy of the union, or of the party of government sometimes. This was particularly the case in much of the 70s, and to a lesser extent into the 80s too. Sometimes it mattered, because the decision would either trigger or dispel upheaval across a vast sector of the economy, affecting millions of people. Sometimes it mattered because the debate was in reality a proxy, a front for deep-seated ideological or factional differences which everyone in the hall understood, but which were never, ever referred to in debate. And sometimes, probably more frequently than should have been the case, it mattered. It really mattered. It really, really mattered whether para 4, Roman numeral 7, indent B of motion 262, was ruled in or out of order, was clear or ambiguous in its meaning, was heard before or after lunch. It was a theatre. And in this theatre, everybody played a part, or had a part to play. The hoi polloi on the conference floor. Were they really a baying mob demanding justice? Or just unswervingly suspicious of them on the top table? The top table, literally raised on a stage, were as the aristocracy. The upper classes seated behind a defensive hoarding of modesty panels. A small laguna an oasis of calm and importance. And front and centre, on a raised even higher dais, sits the presiding officer, judge-like, dispensing wisdom, justice and decisions, protected and empowered by the crowd's fear of her, or his, knowledge of the rulebook, mastery of proceedings, and unique view of the conference floor. On the top table, in serried rows, sit those who exercise power, those who must be held to account, those who will always sell the jerseys, pander to employers, ignore the needs of the members. Usually five or six lines deep, the seniority of the seated diminishing in direct proportion to their distance from the front. And then tucked away discreetly to the left of the hoi polloi, to the right of the top table, is the SOC. The Standing Orders Committee, the duly elected lay members who have determined the rules of the conference, made judgments on the admissibility of motions, ordered the agenda, heard appeals against their rulings. On occasion, loathed equally by the aristocracy and the mob for not playing ball, being too rule-obsessed, seeing the world in a unique way. Oh, what a challenge. What skills and knowledge are needed Oh, what power has the SOC? 
We'll come back to them later. Back now, though, to the hoi polloi. Do not be deceived. There is indeed the whiff of Rousseau's noble savage, but the conference floor is more nuanced, more sophisticated than this. Yes, the floor of conference can be moved to rise as one, to cheer or to object. Yes, it has a collective characteristic, sometimes described as kind, at other times humorous or heartless. But within the four walls of the conference hall, it is, above all else, self-aware. When conference is in session, it is the supreme decision-taking body of the Union. Or something similar are the words in many, most Union rulebooks. And everyone knows it. So the aristocracy treat the hoi polloi with guarded respect. And the floor of conference knows that it has the power to do, well, almost anything. But on most occasions, conference is not a unified force. Different groupings based on occupation or geography or old, long-established political alliances. Differences so sharp that at one conference of a newly merged union, thinly veiled threats of physical violence took the place of what should have been reasoned if impassioned debate. Conferences also throw up heroes and villains too. Take the speaker who can tap into distill and refine the common threads between what people are thinking or feeling and deliver riveting oratory in three minutes flat. They draw in opinions and votes like fish in a giant handheld net thrown out from the rostrum to the four corners of the auditorium and then slowly, inexorably, faultlessly reeled in, the mesh gathered together so tightly that there is no possibility of loose arguments escaping, the debate not being won or lost. It depends entirely on whether the speaker is in favour or against the question being considered. Such giants can come as much from the floor as the top table. I was told, reassuringly, that your credibility in the now much-merged and altered post office engineering union depended not on the policy positions you adopted but how you prosecuted your case. But why then speak of of villains? Surely that's too strong, too cruel, too demeaning for those who just happen to argue for a different policy than the one you yourself favour. But no, conference villainy is less quantifiable than just speaking against the tide of an argument. Although that is not true in extreme cases. I give you the speaker who suggested that young workers' wages were generally satisfactory, generous even, and that the real problem was they spent too much on going out and having fun. Another speaker concluded his argument against cuts in defence expenditure with the assertion that since hanging had been abolished, the whole country had gone to the dogs. These two illustrations show that it is indeed possible to both find and cross the line of acceptable, effective debating points. If generally infamy does not rest on what you are saying, then what are the anchor points, the defining characteristics? Infamy, I find, consists of bringing the whole august process of conference and decision-making into disrepute. You may think this is a bizarre notion, given that the normal proceedings of conference are themselves almost an incitement for disreputable behaviour. 
but remember the iron law of self-awareness, of Amor Prop, that these conferences have hardwired into their DNA. That is the prism you need to look through in determining and predicting where infamy lies. So consider this very informal rogues gallery. Our first and most obvious candidate is the delegate who is up and down to the rostrum so many times that you lose count. And his points are about as sharp as the bluntest knife and his delivery would bore the pips out of an apple. He is impervious to the opprobrium of his conference peers. From the theatrical weariness of the chair as they're called forward again and to the tuck-tuts and muttering of mm, delegates around him. Oh, he's so boring. Admission to the rogues gallery on this ticket can also be fast-tracked if the delegate in question's bona fides are dubious. Take the retired member on his branch delegation when the place would have been taken by someone else. Someone still working? Yes. Black, young, female? Have a bonus point. Gay and or disabled? Festoon this delegation seats with bunting. And can I just emphasise, this is not a cult of political correctness. This was, and in some cases still is, a grievous and self-limiting underrepresentation of various demographics on the floor of far too many conferences. Mind you, having said this, some of the most electrifying of speeches, provoking the warmest of responses, have come from retired members, very demonstrably. Too old and too experienced for even an eyebrow to be raised about their standing. I'm thinking particularly of people like Ernie Perkis, sadly no longer with us, but very much in the thick of the conference of the Communication Workers' Union well into his 90s. All unions will have their equivalent, I'm sure, but these stalwarts use their interventions wisely in a way many did not and many could not. Personal conduct away from the conference hall can also lead to infamy. The conference rumour machine runs on overdrive, so if you have spent the night on a park bench because weariness and disorientation overcame you late into the evening and after more than modest imbibation, you can be sure that your peers and colleagues will make sure you know they know should you manage to stagger to the rostrum the following morning. But rather more seriously, a newspaper sting that revealed a senior official's fondness for paid-for sex on the eve of one conference made sure that it was his last. Then there are those admitted to our gallery by the default of being the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. You see, we usually welcomed representatives of the employers to our events. It helps, you see, for them to see just how angry we are about their latest harebrained, reckless, illiterate or simply cruel scheme to do down our members. They were pantomime villains for the most part. We'd castigate them from the rostrum and then drink-dry the reception they'd lay on for us. Usually. One year, though, things just didn't go to plan. This was always going to be a risk once senior managers moved into their roles without realising, knowing, understanding, or even being curious about what were very mature and robust arrangements. Don't forget, membership density figures of 90-plus percent made us key stakeholders. On this occasion, some strategic announcement had been made about or by Royal Mail. From the top table, the union's most senior negotiator, 
and would-be General Secretary, gave a bravura performance. How dare the company send people to sit with us whilst building a bonfire of trust and good relations. Your pass is withdrawn, he thundered, pointing at the poor unfortunate in the gallery. In the name of God, go! And all that stuff. The floor of conference didn't just agree with him, they lionised him. Which I strongly suspect was exactly the point. But the bitterest rows are always those in-house, aren't they? And when the chair of a sectional conference refused to allow the general secretary of the day, who hailed from a different occupational background, access to the hall on the pretext that it was a closed session, I swear the cursing could have been heard for miles. I'm not sure whose stock of infamy rose more after that. So heroes and villains and sat in the midst of it all is the Standing Orders Committee sometimes also known as the Conference Arrangements Committee, or CAC. The members are elected by their peers, and you can see their responsibility in their name. Conference Arrangements. Viewed accurately by many as the only people who could say no to the executive or the senior officers. Anything not nailed down by the union rulebook is there for the committee to take a view upon. How long people can speak for the admissibility of motions, the order in which they are debated, permissible procedural devices to move to a vote, to move to next business, to move the order of motions around. What power? I mean, yes, I know, we're not talking about parliamentary procedure or multinational trade negotiations. And yet, unions were and still are important. They do impact on national policy issues, do provide a counterweight to corporate influence. So good governance matters and good governance at union conferences matters too. It's all so different now. Some things have seen much improvement while others are still in desperate need of it. We can't go on meeting like this is a mantra chanted with increasing impatience, and quite right too. There's a huge amount of money, time and energy put into a union conference. Surely it is an obligation to make sure you get the best return for the expenditure. For now though, let us end at the beginning with my favourite union conference story, though it is readily applicable to any gathering where things are debated and speeches made. It comes from a union I used to work for, But long, long, long before my arrival, when being a full-time official was akin to nobility in feudal times. Picture the scene. A large hall, 2,000 seats or more, everyone taken and all eyes facing front. Overwhelmingly white and male. Suits and narrow ties, the default fashion. Delegates are called in turn to give their contributions. The microphone positioned on the lectern fixed to a wooden rostrum centred at the front of the hall. Once you are called, it's a long walk down those aisles between the seats to the mic. And as you approach, you see those on the platform literally looking down at you. Arriving at the rostrum, you turn and face the crowded room. Behind you now are the great and the good, your elders and betters, raised above you on that stage and raised above them on that dais. At the front is the presiding officer, the caller of speakers to the rostrum, the chair of the conference. This is the backdrop to my story. The issue under debate is complex and controversial. Opinion is sharply divided between those who are for and those who are against, those who understand and those who do not yet know 
but they do not. The discussion has ranged and raged for over 50 minutes. And now it is time for the top table speaker to bring arguments to a close with a final, telling, vital contribution before the all-important vote is taken. If the top table speaker appears supremely unconcerned by this challenge, that is because he is. He is also disconnected from the intensity of the debate, and in fact, from the debate itself. Rather than making notes to reference in his own remarks, he has in fact been contemplating and completing nothing less than today's cryptic crossword. That half-smile, it's not the acknowledgement of some delegate's sharp wit or play on words. No, it is the self-satisfaction from having resolved the clue. Traffic merging requires a lot of workers. Two words, five and five. (laughs) Most appropriate. And the reason for the top table speaker's insouciance is to be found on the table, more a shelf really, running the width of the stage directly behind the front row of seats. On the table sit cardboard files. Lots and lots and lots of files. One for each debate on the agenda. Ordered and colour-coded by motion number, subject and when the particular item is due to be heard. And within each file is not just a brief, not just some relevant bullet points, but as years old custom and practice demand, a fully worked speech crafted by a junior researcher charged on pain of dismissal with covering all the points that could conceivably have been made. Sometimes even a carefully drawn light-hearted observation. All the top table speaker has to do is stand and read the words with suitable gravitas and diction. The top table speaker would not be worth his salt if he could not do gravitas and diction. So you can be sure that, yes, he most certainly can. And that is why, with total confidence and certainty, the top table speaker rises from his seat, reaches behind him for the slim orange file, which he places on a lectern of his own. Taking in the conference hall and all the delegates, and feeling all the eyes upon him, and not looking down, he opens the file. There is a palpable sense of expectation, the sense of, well, power, I suppose. He clears his throat and focuses on the paper, in the file, on the lectern. But then his eyes unexpectedly widen and an unaccustomed sweat breaks out on his brow. There is another guttural noise, but this is from deep within him, and is a visceral, wrenching sound. His collar feels too tight. The room begins to sway and rotate around him, for instead of a speech typed in 16-point bold and double-spaced, There is but one sheet of paper in the orange file, and on that one sheet of paper just one careful sentence on one solitary line. It reads, You are on your own. You are on your own. You are on your own. 
This has been Union Days, scenes from a Union scrapbook with me, Simon Sapper. Music is by Scott Holmes, production by Makes You Think. Subscribe, rate and review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can email the show at info at makesyouthink.com. Thanks for listening.